I was raised in an atheistic home, very atheist, so atheistic that my father actually was such an ardent atheist that he named, so my, I have an older brother named Matthew, four years older than me, and uh, he refused to spell his name with two T's. And he told my mom the reason was because he didn't want it to be spelled the same as the Bible spells it. The Gospel of Matthew, he said, I don't want anything to do with the Bible. So he spelled my brother's name with one T. And then four years later, they had me and named me Mark. So clearly he didn't see the irony of what it was like to, like literally if I had a brother and there's, oh, Oh, name is Luke. I like the name Luke. And then John, little John running around. And so literally the guy never opened a Bible for him. I clue what's going on in the world and was against Christianity, was against faith. I had no Bible in my life, uh, no prayer, no God, no church, never walked to church till I was 19. So these massive questions were actually part of my life and continue to be part of my life. So I'm a skeptic. When I was first presented with the idea of Christianity, the DS3, I actually laughed at it because in my mind, in my upbringing, the stereotype of somebody who believed in God were people, you had smart people and then you had dumb people. You had people who dealt with uh, science and reason and rationale. And then you had people who believed in God and had faith and went to church and it was a crutch. And I was like, okay, you had smart people and dumb people. And so my world was like, I don't want to be a dumb person. And then Christianity got presented to me and I actually started investigating it from a scientific perspective. I started investigating it from a historical perspective, a psychological, a philosophical perspective. And so what I began realizing is almost overnight, as I started to explore Christianity, it began to make rational, reasonable sense to me as I'd studied the philosophy and the science and the history. I was able to defend Christianity from a rational, reasonable standpoint and show them that you don't have to abandon your mind in order to be a Christian. You don't have to abandon your mind in order to be a theist, someone who believes in God. All right. Good morning. How are we doing? <laughs> Thanks, Katina. All right. Um, just going to talk about science today, so we'll do a bit of a science experiment. How excited are we? <laughs> so I have here, uh, in case you didn't know, uh, air fresheners. You know, some of us, you know, buy them in the store, those chemical air fresheners. But in case you didn't know, there's like tons of recipes on the internet that you can kind of create your own um, air fresheners with like natural things. And so I made my own, um, oh, I need my iPad. Ah, oh, there it is. I was like, I don't have any notes. We're winging it today. Not a good day to wing, I got it. Yeah, awesome. Don't want to get this experiment wrong. It's vital, important. Let's see if I got notes on here. All right, wonderful. Okay, so you can make your. I made my own recipe, and um, uh, so there's like some some raspberries, lemon, lime, some mint. It smells wonderful, and you don't get all those chemical stuff. You know who's already on Pinterest, right? Okay, so th this is this is my this is my. Uh, concoction, and I call, I named my recipe, I named it matter. And in case you didn't know what matter is, it's a physical substance in general as distinct from mind and spirit in physics with that which occupies space and possesses rest mass, especially as distinct from energy. And then I went out and got one of these, it's an easy sprayer. Get it easy? Oh, that's cute. Um, so, and, uh, but I didn't like that name, so I, I was like, man, I got my matter spritzer here, and uh, I, 
I wanted to name it, so I thought, The Big Bang. Alright, so I named my, my spritzer here. I've got my matter in it, Big Bang. In case you didn't know what a Big Bang was, uh, the rapid expansion of matter, ooh-ah, ooh-ah, okay, uh, from a state of extremely high density and temperature, and which according to current cosmological theories mark the origin of the universe. Okay, so we're going to start the universe here. So get your cell phones out, because this is crowd participation time. And, um, and so I'm going to use my Big Bang, and I am going to spray my matter recipe into the air. So I want you to focus on my Bible. I've already got spritzer all over it. It's all right. God doesn't mind. All right. So I'm gonna, I want a mid-spray shot. So if you focus your... Go ahead. Focus your, you can use your phones in church. It's all good. We're that kind of church. Some of you are shaking your head. Oh, no. So, so focus, because that's we want mid-spritz. We want matter bursting out into the atmosphere, and you want a nice close-up shot of that matter. There's all sorts of stuff in there. Pour it all over. Good thing it's organic. Okay, so so I'm going to shoot it up. Everyone focused on there. Okay, you got a good shot. We'll do two of them. And so I'm going to spritz my matter into the atmosphere. We ready? Three, two, one. Okay, we'll do another one. We want mid mid spritz as it's exploding into the atmosphere. Three, two, one. All right, we got one. Awesome, wonderful. So, um, so you know, I have my little spritzer here. Okay, it's a spritzer. Okay, <laughs> I'm a preacher, not an artist. Okay, and so we got like all our matter here. We got all sorts of stuff. We got colors. Who likes colors? Raise your hand if you like colors. Okay. Cubbies don't know what they're missing out right now. Okay, um, so we got all sorts of matter. We got big little little bits of mint, and, and uh, well, that's purple. Okay, there's the mint. Those are the raspberries, I guess. Okay, so we got all sorts of stuff, and it's all here. Now, you guys took a a snapshot mid mid spritz. Oh dear, just cut through. All right, different marker. All right, there we go. That's good. Okay, so you took that, that snapshot, right? Okay, so we got Big Bang, good old Big Bang, we got matter. And if you're going to save that image, okay, you're going to call it AH1929, Hubble1929, and that's what you're going to call your spritzer. But I have a confession, sometimes I lose Big Bang. I forget where I put it. But I have three boys, and it gets funky in our house. I'm like, I need, I need some spritz. I, I need some matter spritz. We gotta freshen this place up. And so when Nicole's not around, don't tell her. I have a different expansion de device for my matter. I, I simply take the concoction, I stir it up in a glass, and I, you know, for heat and expansion, and I get all going. And my, my, I have my own expansion device, and I just go around the house, and it just freshens the air, as well as my breath. Okay? But when I expand it, when I, you know, when I do it, you know, I, you know, I got my, this is my, that's my, my other expansion device, 
Okay, and we need all our matter. Let's get some mint and some berries and different stuff like that, right? We got all this. Okay, and there we go. And uh, and I like I I lips didn't sound so good, so I decided I would I would call it what would I call that move? I call it the creator. Yeah, the creator. A, a person or thing that brings something into existence. But, but here's the best part. If you were to look midstream, it looks a lot like that one. You wouldn't know. I'm just dispersing my matter all over. Right? Freshening the air. Now, you guys are pretty smart people. At least I assume so. So you're probably going where we're going here. You're probably realizing where we're going. This is Big Bang. This is Hubble. And matter looks about the same. So how are we to know? How are we to know? Did Jeremy use the Big Bang sprayer or did he use the creator? Saying he used the creator is a little dodgy, don't you think? Today we're looking at the problem of science. One of the greatest challenges people have with Christianity is that, is that science is opposed to Christianity, that the two are like polar opposites. It's actually our present myth, um, our present myth being that, that Christianity is opposed to science and always has been. That you can't bring those two worlds, that those two worlds are opposed. And this is a myth that's brought to us constantly. And, and if we if were to look at this, um, the reason why a lot of people say that Christianity is opposed to science is because of origin. They simply say, oh, well, Christians are against Big Bang, and therefore they're against all science. Because everything, supposedly, in science starts from that point. And so if today, if we're to really look at it, and if we're to really unpack the evidence, we, we can get into all the details, but where the argument really stems from is where we come from. Who put us here? What put us here? Where did everything stem from? What we're going to look at today... And what I'm going to try to show you is Christians have actually been at the forefront of the science. And Christians were actually assuming the science before we knew. That Christians were already teaching that the world was finite and that the world had a beginning before atheism, before science ever proved it to be true. And for hundreds of years, Christians, theologians and Christian philosophers have said there is an origin in the universe. We do live in a finite universe. There was a beginning and there will be an end. And the science actually had to catch up to the theology. And we're going to look at the historical facts and the scientific facts of that. But, so let's jump right into the historical record. We're going to travel back in time today. Who's excited for the History Channel? Come on, people. Woo! Yeah, okay, awesome, good. I want to introduce you to Edwin Hubble. So Edwin Hubble, he, uh, pretty smart fellow, PhD, astronomer, cosmologist, at Mount Wilson Observatory. Really smart guy. Edwin Hubble was actually raised as a Christian. In his adult life, he kept kind of a faith and religion, kind of a quiet thing. He spoke a lot about destiny and what we're destined to do. But he, we, it's not really known whether Edwin Hubble maintained his faith or practiced it maybe privately. We don't really know. But we do know that he was raised in a Christian home. So he knew the Bible, knew Christian values. Um, but that's kind of besides the point, because in 1929, Hubble's looking through his, his telescope, and he realizes that there's more beyond the Milky Way. 
this leads, this research leads down a journey that the conclusion comes that the universe actually had a beginning. That the universe is finite. It had a start. It had a starting point. So when something has a starting point, all of a sudden we're like, oh my goodness, there might be an ending point. Right? This is finite. Up until that moment, science, popular science, stated, no, the universe is infinite. We'll never know the beginning, never know the end. It just kind of exists and it goes on. When Hubble actually released this information, a lot of his colleagues and the established and the established kind of cosmological astronomy world rejected it, strongly rejected it. Because, and, and so the, the atheist perspective said, no, no, there can't be. We know the universe is infinite. We know this. And one guy in particular, one guy in particular opposed him so vigorously. It was an outspoken atheist activist, uh, Harvard's Harlow Shapley. Why don't you see him? Harlow Shapley, PhD, astronomer, astronomer uh, scientist, um, worked at Harvard College uh, Observatory. Super smart guy. He fiercely, publicly critiqued Hubble and called his research junk science. But here's what's fascinating about Hubble's response is he, he didn't get into a political debate with him. He didn't get in a public debate. He just wrote him a letter. He wrote him a letter explaining the evidence and just said, hey, look, I looked through my telescope. Here's what I found. Here's the research. You know, I know you think it's junk science, but here it is. Almost immediately after, Shapley publicly <laughs> said to a colleague, and he's noted as, as quoting this statement, holding up Hubble's letter, a polite letter, saying, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. Because up until that moment, they had taught and believed firmly that the universe was infinite. There was no beginning. But now all of a sudden, Hubble's research has now unraveled that, that the universe started at some point. And so this is it. Everything Shapley knew, everything the atheist establishment at that time that they were teaching in, in all the major universities, it was falling apart. It was coming unraveled. And, but this leads us to some questions. Why was Hubble so shocked when he realized that the universe is expanding? And more importantly, why did his colleagues reject his research initially so fervently? The reason is, is because the establishment had started on a faith position. Everything they thought about, everything they believed, everything they taught started with the faith position that the universe is infinite and has no beginning, has no end. They started everything they looked at, everything they did, stemmed out of that faith position. They didn't come to the research and say, hey, maybe the universe began. They said, no, the universe had no beginning. It's infinite. It just goes on and on and on and on. And we're just one little, you know, bit of matter in the whole mess of it. They started on that faith position and it continued. But they also ignored history. And, and this is where the popular movement to move spirituality, to move faith, theology, and philosophy away from science, that these two things can't coexist, this is problematic. Because if they didn't, they would have learned that hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, theologians and Christian philosophers have been studying, teaching, and trying to tell the world, hey, based on the physics and the metaphysics, the universe had to have a beginning, guys. We, we can't prove the point. We don't know. But I, it started somewhere based on the physics, based on the metaphysics. Like physical matter can't just come out of nowhere. 
It's, it's a science. And so they were saying it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, looking at the stars, looking at the sky, looking at the universe, saying, we can't see past it, we can't see good enough, but one day we will. And I want to introduce you to another guy. Almost 200 years before Hubble, Immanuel Kant, PhD, Christian philosopher and creationist, his major study was in ethics and metaphysics. This is what he was an expert on. And again, theologians and philosophers have been talking about the beginning of the universe for a long time. But um, Kant made it his life's work. He dug into it. And he was radically opposed to atheism, and Kant firmly believed, firmly believed that the universe was not infinite, and firmly believed that there was a beginning, and he chased it. Well, in 1755, he actually published his work. Um, it was called, and you can read it now, you can download it, and uh, it's, it's fascinating, you can read all about it. It's old English, so it's a little tough to read, but it's great. General History of Nature and Theory of the Heavens. He's looking up at the stars, and he's like, you know, this had to have had a beginning from how this whole thing's moving and ebbing and flowing. And so he published this, an attempt to account for the constitutional and mechanical origin of the universe upon Newtonian principles. And Newtonian principles, uh, established by a very important guy, Sir Isaac Newton, okay, very famous, I'm sure you heard his name, very famous mathematician and scientist, he took his work, the things that he had proved, and he's looking at the universe and saying, hey, structurally, when we put these things all together, there is some strong evidence here that maybe, maybe one day we'll be able to prove that the universe had a beginning, that it had a starting point. But again, at this time, as Kant released this, at the very forefront, like wanting to discredit Kant's work based on Sir Isaac Newton's uh, work, was atheism. They said, this guy's a nut job. Can't, he, he's fabricating nothing. This is, again, this is junk science. And then, 174 years later, Hubble would look through a telescope, looking up at the sky as well, and say, uh-oh, this thing's expanding. This started somewhere. There's more to this story. And if they only had a looked at Christian philosophy and, the and theology, Christians have been looking up at the sky for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. Thousands of years we'll find here soon when we get into the biblical evidence. So why were Christians ahead of the research? You know, why was Kant's theory correct 174 years earlier before he had the evidence to prove it? Because they started with the faith position that there's a creator. They, they started by looking at this book and saying, there's something here. There's a story here. They looked at the universe. They looked at the natural world. And they looked up at the stars and said, I don't think this happened by chance. I believe something started this. And because they started there, they were able to be open to what the evidence was going to reveal to them and what the physics and metaphysics was going to reveal to them and then eventually, with Hubble, what would be revealed through cosmology and astronomy. So let's talk about the biblical teaching. Again, theology, Christian philosophy has believed this for a long time. I want to take you back uh, to a guy by the name of King David. 
Uh, he lived between 1035 and 961 BC, a long, long time ago. And uh, in 1015 BC, he wrote some verses, God let him write some verses that have kind of rocked the world of any cosmologist or astronomer who looks up at the sky and says, I think something started this. So we're going to look at that. Let's look at Psalm 19. If, if you're kind of new to church, uh, that's okay. You want to grab a Bible under the seats in front of you. And if you go right about to the middle of your Bible, you're going to see uh, and go to Psalm 19. And so King David, he's looking up at the heavens, what they refer to as the heavens, meaning the universe. He, he's looking above, and God reveals this to him. And so he writes, The heavens, again, he's talking about stars, the universe, he's looking up. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You see... David looks up, and God reveals to him, when you look at the sky and you look at the order, what he calls the circuit, that there's a system in place, that everything's functioning like, like a mechanical clock, tick, 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 and, and it reveals knowledge, it speaks out to say, this wasn't by chance. And the deeper we look into the natural world, the, the longer we gaze at the night sky, the more times we look at a sunrise and a sunset, the, the Bible reveals to us that it will reveal more and more about the one who created it all. We need to look, but with the faith posi position of an open mind. Don't look at the stars or look at the sunrise or look at the set, sunset with pre, uh, a predetermined faith position. Be open. And if it's open, it will reveal things. And that's not the only one. We really don't have the time. But there are hundreds and hundreds of references in the Bible to cosmological things, to, to astronomy from stars and moon and sun and cosmos. There are hundreds. And, and all of them talk about that when we look up, when we look up, something should be revealed to us. A mystery should be revealed to us. And, and this, is, this is such a powerful psalm. I want to introduce you to C.S. Lewis, author, theologian, philosopher, Cambridge professor, and former atheist. He actually was a staunch atheist and went on the attack fervently to Christians until his early 30s uh, when he finally accepted theism that there's a God and that led him down a journey to Jesus. And when he reads Psalm 19, Psalm 19, the, the display of the universe and what it declares, uh, here's what he was quoted saying about Psalm 19. He said, he said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter, or the, the, the Psalms, or the Book of Psalms. And he says this, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. One of the greatest lyrics in the world. This is a Cambridge professor, theologian, philosopher. Uh, this is not a dumb guy 
former atheist, and he looks at those words and, and his mind is blown. He's, this, this is the greatest lyric in the world. That's powerful. That's, that's a very authoritative vo voice making a very authoritative statement about a biblical reference and a lyric, because there's been millions, billions, and billions of lyrics written. And you can read more uh, of his if you want to look at his book, Reflection on the Psalms. Uh, he wrote it in 1958. It's a good book. You can have a look. So let's go to Christianity now. Uh, Christianity, there kind of poses... Uh, there's, there's kind of a problem in Christianity with science, too. And for those of you that maybe are new to church or didn't know, the bit of a spoiler alert, Christians don't get along all the time. Shocker. They actually disagree, and sometimes they debate, and sometimes they argue, and they, and they don't get along. And if you came into church thinking that there's perfect people in the church, you're wrong. Okay, Lots of disagreements in the church. One of the major disagreements currently happening, the major debate is that's been going for a long time now, is uh, the old earth versus young earth debate. And the question comes, did God start the Big Bang? You know, my little, the creator dispersion there. Did God start? Did he flick the switch? Because we can't explain the physics, the metaphysics, and you say, well, that makes sense. God just put a little bit of matter together and lit the fuse, and he started, and then everything evolved from there. But the problem always comes with Genesis 1, 26, 27 in the creation account. It's the, the problem of an adult Adam. Adam being Adam and Eve, not Adam like the T. It's a different story. Read Problem of God. We talk lots about Adam in there. Um, so God said, then, let, then said, let us make, make man. So he does all creation, and then he says, let us make man. So, God created man. That, that man seems to be like this pinnacle, that humanity comes at the end. And it's like, well, did, did it evolve last? But then it's like, it's like, then God said. And so this is a real rustling. On, this, on these verses, it's like, okay, well, if God created an adult Adam, an adult human, did he create adult mountains? Did he create mountains already millions of years old? Like he created Adam. Let's say he created him at, what's a good age? Like 22. Most guys are kind of in their prime at 22. Let's say 25. So he creates Adam at 25. He's already an adult. You know, the whole thing, Adam never had a belly button. Okay? And uh, so, well, maybe he created mountains a million years old or two million years old. Well, maybe he created the canine species already fully developed. And then like... Like ungulates, like moose and elk, and it created all of them. So the, the, the problem of Adam, this is where it comes. Did, did God place in to creation full-grown species with their DNA? And so there's kickback. And so Mark Lark, by the way, I heard a podcast, and, they, and a podcaster asked him, are you young earth or old earth? And he just laughed. <laughs> and he said, no comment. Because Mark was smart enough to know with the amount of following and his book's gone worldwide, if he makes a statement on where he sits, his email account would blow up and he'd never survive. And next talk show host on either side, whichever camp he goes. Um, uh, I have a far uh, shallower following than Mark Clark, so I'm just going to say where I sit, because I'm not worried. I might get a few emails, but it's good. I can handle it. Just pass them off to the elders. No, that's not true. Um, so for me, I'm a young earth creationist. And 
and so when I state that, there's obviously attack in the old earth, young earth debate. It's like, well, Jeremy, what about fossils? Okay, let's unpack fossils. I want to introduce you to, to, to a man by the name of Stephen J. Gould. Okay, Stephen J. Gould, a PhD, paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, science historian, and Harvard professor. Extremely intelligent guy. Also, guy, I'll notice, uh, I'll state too, uh, he passed away not too long ago, but he was a fervent atheist. He, he never turned to theism. He, he stood firm on his atheism. However, his study of paleontology really caused him a lot of problems. And he was one of the few paleontologists that published the truth. And here's what he said. He was a real problem in the paleontology world, but hey, he was truthful. So I, I give him credit for that. He was a truthful guy. Here's what he published. He said, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. Okay? Um, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. Yet, Darwin was so wedded to gradualism that he wagered his entire theory on a denial of this literal record. Darwin's argument still persists as the favored escape for most paleontologists from the embarrassment of the record that seems to show so little evolution. Paleontologists have paid an exorbitant price for Darwin's argument. We fancy ourselves as the only true students of life's history Yet to preserve our favored account, okay, the theory of evolution by natural selection, we view our data as so bad that we never see the very process we profess to study. Some of you are teachers, and some of you have, have, are, have in, in the public school system, Stephen J. Gould will not be found in your textbooks. Because he's saying, look, there's no, we're struggling to find the transitionary fossils. So we got Komodo dragon, we got a wolf, right? You know, and we, what we want, we want the wolf to be like, how are you doing? And, and you know, we, you know, can you feel the love today? We, we want, we want the fossil of the Komodo wolf. That's what we want. And sure, in textbooks, there's nice paintings and drawings of like Komodo wolf, and it's, it's like a lizard that's got wolf hair and canine teeth. The problem is, if we take evolution as fact, then there should be thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fossils that happened over millions of years that show Komodo wolf. I want to dig into a rock and I want to find the Komodo dragon with canine teeth. That's what I'm looking for. But he's not there. And paleontologists have been banging their heads against the wall because they believe this so fervently, but they can't find it. And there should be thousands, and it's puzzling them. They're like, no, no, we believe this to be true. And over this much time, like, we should find, and this comes down to the missing link. And it's like, oh, they found a skull where there's a human skull where the jaw protrudes a little bit. And they're like, aha, this is the missing link. They unpack the DNA, no, human DNA. Stink. They, they, they're like, no, we need to find, the, we need the transitional species where half the DNA is primate, half the DNA is human, and then we'll finally prove it. And to be honest, if they present that DNA, I'm all in. 
Because it's the evidence. I will have to admit, if they find, all of a sudden, they dig deep enough and they find whole cities of people that are matched up with half-primate, half-human half DNA. If they find Komodo wolf or whatever, and they find a whole pack of them that was buried in some mudslide, I'm, I'm in. But I'm not going to accept drawings and theories. I want photographs. I want museums that haven't been altered. And Stephen Jay Gould, one of the leading paleontologists in the past hundred years, one of the smartest men on the earth as far as this, evolutionary biologist, he's frustrated because Darwin started with a faith position and a theory, and because paleontology stuck to Darwin's theory, it has caused them problems ever since. Because they start that Darwin was 100% correct. And this is what he's trying to say. We've married ourselves to Darwin's theory that we don't even have the evidence to support what we believe to be true. But let's talk about DNA. Because sometimes people say, hey, Jeremy, well, what about the DNA? Let's talk about the DNA. Let's talk about a guy, very alive now, still working, still leading the Human Genome product, Project. I want to introduce you to Francis S. Collins. You can read his work now. He's still speaking. Amazing guy. MD, PhD, physician, geneticist, director of the Human, Human Genome Project, former atheist and author of The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. And this book, you can get it, and he just releases, uh, releases the, 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 his research. And what he found, here's what he, here's what he says, here's a little quote. He says, as the director of the Human Genome Project, I have led a consortium of scientists to read out the, wait for it, 3.1 B billion letters of the human genome, our own DNA instruction book. I see DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language, and the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. When he unpacks the 3.1 billion letters of code, and for those of you that may be into computer code, if you can think about that, it is so perfectly designed and so perfectly matched out as they've parsed it all out, he can't deny, and he had to public publicize his research to state this is evidence that humanity was created. Basically, once the 3.1 billion letters of code were unpacked, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 hold true. That humanity, just like canines, primates, ungulates, everything. That the kinds that God talks about in Scripture, everything made in its kind, that everything in that kind has a DNA code book that is mapped out specifically. And in order for it to happen by chance, it's like billion, 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 billion times of a chance that it would work itself out to arrange. And maybe if it arranged in one species, let's just go there. Let's just say that ah, it worked out for canine kind. And so for canines, it all worked out. The fact that it worked out and that it's specifically designed and worked out without a whole species dying off, that, that, that the codes continue to hold fast for every species is problematic for the atheist view. And so for me, it all comes down to Jesus. 
Because ultimately, if I'm to, whether someone's old earth or young earth, I'm not going to get into it with them. Jesus is most important. Whatever you feel about Genesis 1, that's fine. But it leads us down a journey through the rest of this, which ultimately leads to Jesus. Ultimately, that whether, whether we were created here, or whether maybe we were created here and each of the kinds went forward, or we were created here, we know paleontology has the stuff, the tips and notes, what, wherever someone sits, if they just admit, okay, there's a creator, then let's start reading this book then, because it might have clues. And if we read this book, we see that the creator, wherever he started this, he created human beings to have a mind, and they fell, and they sinned. And they couldn't come before a holy God, a worthy creator, and so he sent part of himself, Jesus, to die on our behalf and rise again and conquer sin so that his created people, humankind, to which 3.1 billion letters of DNA pulse through your veins, that you are so loved and so important and so divinely created, so specifically, 3.1 billion letters of code. Just try and imagine that. That's inside of you right now. There, in order for that to be designed in you, someone must care a lot about you. And he cared so much that he sent his son to die for you and die for sin. And he rose again so that when we pass from this natural earth, that our soul will continue on past the physical, past the metaphysical, past the science, and we'll go to heaven and we'll be able to be with him because of Jesus. And so if you can accept today, if you can accept, you know what? Maybe the evidence really is pointing that something was created. I don't really care where you sit here. We can still be friends. I just want you to continue to read the rest of the story. And as you read the rest of the story, as we get into about here, the entrance of Jesus and everything changes. God wants a relationship with you. He has divinely created a plan for you. And once you accept Jesus, he will give you the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you, once you have the Holy Spirit, everything, everything, comes, everything becomes new. Because for a Christian, when we look at a mountain, we look at mountains like everyone else looks at Mount Rushmore. No one goes to Mount Rushmore and it's like, oh, that's cool how that nose evolved. That's how we look at mountains. We look at mountains and we say, creator. Not chance, creator. We, we see rocks in the ground and, and maybe here we're gold panning and there's all different types of rocks and metals. And, and if we found an arrowhead, anyone would say, oh, there was a creator to this arrowhead. It's made of rock, but someone created this. If you really want to unpack how a Christian feels, every rock, every mineral, every metal, we look at it and we say, wow, creator. We walk around the natural world and we're just, our minds are blown away. And like people stand in awe at Mount Rushmore, or they look at the intricacies of an arrowhead, we look at everything that way. And all of it leads us to Jesus that we can be with that creator, that we will be in his presence forever. And that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. This week, uh, once again, I encourage you to, to uh, have, have some conversations. Join a community group. Um, I want to leave you with one last verse, though. We talked last week about Paul, Apostle Paul, great philosopher, theologian, great speaker, thinker, amazing guy. He wrote a letter to, to Rome, and Rome was one of the hubs at that time, and he wrote this. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul was trying to tell the Romans, the great minds of the day, was you should be able to look at the natural world, and he's saying you're without excuse. When you go into the natural world, you should, you should state something did this. It reveals God's invisible, invisible attributes. And so I, I urge you this week, take a walk, go for a hike, look at the mountains, look at the wilderness, and, and ask God to reveal it to you. And so this week, have conversations. Take someone out for coffee. Take someone out for lunch. Uh, get them a copy of the book, The Problem of God. You can grab a copy there. Read through the Psalms. Uh, read through Romans if you want. Uh, Paul's letter to um, a very, very, at that time in the first century, probably the most well-educated uh, cities in the first century. And uh, take a look at that. Join a community group. If, if you haven't, maybe you're thinking about hosting or facilitating a community group. The study guides uh, are available. There's study guides at the back, printed ones. You can get a PDF copy if you want. You can get all that. And uh, lastly, before we sing one more song, we're just going to... Uh, I'm going to pray, but I want to ask the ushers to come forward. If you're new here, don't feel that you have to give. Uh, you can just sit and pray or sit and think about, reflect on what you've done. You can sing if you want. Whatever you want to do, you don't have to do anything at all. But for those of us that call Mountain View home, this is an opportunity for us to worship through giving. We, we give back to God. We believe not only did he create everything, he sustains us and he sustains us with possessions and money to buy for food or food for hunting and fishing. And he sustains our lives. And so we choose to give back to that. And uh, our church uses it to reach more people for Jesus, to teach more people about Jesus. That's what we want to be about. And so if you want to give to that, that would be amazing. Thank you so much for doing that. And uh, also, uh, someone will be over here to pray. If maybe you need someone to pray for you, pray with you, we'll do that too. All right, let me pray. Dear Father, thank you uh, once again for Mark Clark and his research. Thank you for this opportunity to unpack some of it. And uh, Lord, for those of us that looked at the Bible, for those Christians so many years before, and as Paul said, that the invisible attributes, they're revealed in creation. And, and um, Father, I think of Immanuel Kant, that he was so ahead of the game before Hubble ever proved it. He just looked at the stars and said, there has to be more. May we look tonight, may we look today, may we look to the heavens and the universe, may we look at the mountains, the wilderness, the lakes, the streams. Father, reveal to us that you've created it. However long ago you created, Father, I believe in that to you, but that it's a plan in place. And there's going to be a new creation, new earth, and I thank you for that. I pray if anyone doesn't know you, that they would give their life to Jesus, that they would accept him and follow him, and they would have forgiveness of sin and come in a right relationship with you again. Father, as we give money here um, as just a bit of a testimony, a bit of a a witness to your goodness. We pray that you would accept it. We're so thankful for what you've given us and so we want to give it back and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name.